I'm it's like picking my nose. No, don't my, do my nose itches. I know mine too. Every time but before I start. Very strange. Hey, we are live. What's up, everybody? Hi. My name is Joshua. This is my amazing wife, Jessica Lynn. Uh, we are on a conversation with Joshua T. Berglund today, and she's my special guest host because, well, she's my wife and. I like having her be a part of this. Thank anyway, um, we're on the Live Mana Network. Thank you so much to everyone uh, that has been supported our network. You've downloaded the apps. You found us on uh, Google News. All of it is appreciative. But if you want to find us, let's see. Which way is my finger going? Okay. It's right here. You know, the mirror thing is weird. That's so tricky. that barcode right there, you can scan uh, and find links to all of our apps. You can find links to our nonprofit organization, the Live Mono Worldwide Foundation, which the Live Mono Network is a part of. Um, we're just super grateful for your support and grateful to have this platform that's censorship-free, that we can talk about issues that are, well, really tough. Tough to talk about. <laughs> um, and one issue, and this is it's interesting too, because this very topic that we're going to discuss today is actually how we got kicked off of our other two networks. Um, so, but the cool thing is, is this, we have, I got to be honest with you, we'll give a platform to anybody and give anyone an opportunity to share their truth. And unfortunately, sometimes people uh, expose themselves for being frauds. And we've seen a lot of that recently, but it is really encouraging to me with our guest today. Um, not only did she go through uh, some of the, the CPS horror show that we've heard about on this show before, but she actually fought and won. And so that to me is a good sign that she's telling the truth. So with her telling the truth and us knowing that, I feel like we're going to be able to get the foundational information that we need to know how we can better serve and help this population. Uh, some of you don't know, and I won't go into the detail, but we had to deal with the CPS situation, not with not our children, not her two kids, um, but we had to, it, was, it was close to home. Uh, we had to show up in court, had to meet with all the attorneys in Texas mm -hmm. and the CPS people. And I got to tell you, that is a completely different scenario than I yeah. ever imagined. I would imagine myself to be in, but I'm grateful for it because we got to look for what we saw on the surface, what CPS was all about. So without going into a lot of detail here, I just want to say I'm super excited about our guest today, Rachel Bruno. Uh, she wrote a book called Fractured Hope, A Woman's Fi or Mom's Fight for Justice. Um, and I know that you can check that out on Amazon, and I'm sure it's on rachelbruno.com also. Um, and she's taking what, what I believe the enemy was using to try to break her. She's now using as revenge on the enemy and also showing other people how to fight this fight. And uh, so I have mad respect for her already, and we've said maybe five words to each other. So anyway, you guys are in for an absolute treat. Do you have anything to say? Well, I mean, any mom willing to take what they're going to get in, in backlash fighting for their kids, it, I have mad admiration for them. That's amazing. I know just from personal experience. So I'm excited. And that's a mama bear. Yeah. Right I'll there. take anyone. Down. <laughs> like she's, Aww. she's tougher than me. All right. We'll be right back after these messages.
want them rolling out the red carpet, the red carpet, the red carpet. You want them rolling out the red carpet, the red carpet, the red carpet. You want the finer things, the diamond rings, designer jeans, all minor things in the widest scheme. But at what cost to realize your dreams? Been bleeding in the wheel more, put the crown of thorns on, spill more. My mic bloody cause I kill more, but I'm still poor. Bottom is where I started, but I get to the top and park it. Hug up in a harlot, my battery need charging. And to reach my target is the illest in the market. Is some liquid from my arteries, will spill onto the carpet, yeah. Everybody want fame, nobody wanna work for it. Want them all to know your name, don't wanna see no hurt for it. You wanna rolling out the red carpet, the red carpet, the red. We both got goosebumps. Goosebumps. I've seen that intro video, I think, fifty times now, and. For some reason, watching it, got, we both got goosebumps at the same time. I feel like it becomes more relevant in today's day mm. as the days go by. It's true. Wow. Anyway, well, guys, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, whatever you identify as today. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. Boys and girls, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that's all there is. There's two sexes. Uh, and you were born with them. Oh man! Know. And you know what? It, before anyone sends hate mail, yeah, yeah. you should read my story <laughs> so you'll understand why we're not making fun of anybody. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> you just look, hear my testimony. You'll understand. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited. Um, and you know what? You should be too. And here's why: because finally. Instead of the smoke and mirrors BS, people talking about things. My God, we've had people on this program that have run GoFundMe scams. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. And it's been so frustrating because we want to help good people. This is what we use this platform for, is to elevate not just not just to be a voice for the voiceless, but to elevate other voices for the voiceless. And people who take advantage of that, piss me off because they're getting in the way of good people getting the help that they need. And I promise you, God's wrath is way worse than mine. And I, I don't even do anything because I know y'all are going to be taken care of in a, in a, in a, you know, God's way. But I'm so happy to have somebody that's the real deal and we can authenticate it and we know. And, um, because I, I really want to understand this. Like I truly want to understand and I believe that there's no one better on the planet than Rachel Bruno to help us do that. Ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Bruno. Hello, my friend. How are you? Hello. Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. Welcome to a conversation with Joshua T. Berglund and hey, Jessica Lynn. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we get into uh, just the conversation here, uh, first things first, what are you grateful for today and why? I am grateful to be alive today, <laughs> and I am grateful to have my children with me. You know, as the story will reveal, my story could have ended a lot differently. <laughs> yeah, and and that and that's saying something, and I that it would be a good thing to go for. It's probably the the most obvious gratitude you could possibly yeah. have, knowing just a little bit of your story that I do. But I guess my first question for you would be. 
how did this happen? Like, how did CPS take your kids from you? Well, just a little background about me. I have seizures. I have epilepsy. And one of my main triggers to the episodes are sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep. So when I had my second child, you know, all us moms out there know you ain't sleeping with a newborn. (laughs) So tired. So my doctors actually recommended that I get somebody to at least cover the night shift so that I could get those eight hours of sleep, those eight solid hours. So I hired a nighttime nanny. And she would watch my son from 10 at night until six in the morning. So I had this person watching my son. She started when he was seven days old. And this happened when he was seven weeks old. I woke up to him screaming at about four o'clock in the morning. Now I look at the clock. I'm like, okay, four o'clock, probably feeding him or changing him, something to that extent. He stopped crying. Then about 10 minutes would go by. Then he'd start screaming again. Then he stopped. Then he'd start again. So this went on for about 30 minutes until I decided to get up. You know, I walked into his room. She had him swaddled inside the crib. And, you know, he was laying on his back, tummy side up. She had her hand on his chest and she was like wiggling him back and forth, trying to get him to calm down. And he was not having it. I mean, that kid was screaming. So she picked him up, put him like in a burp position on her shoulder. And at that point he stopped screaming. And I, you know, I walked in, I looked at her. I'm like, did anything happen? And she showed me an empty bottle and she said, I just fed him. He's really gassy. I said, okay, you know, fair enough. Babies get gassy, seven weeks old. And at this point I'm home alone. My husband is on a business trip out of state. I have my 20 month old son who's sleeping directly across the hallway. And I'm like, okay, you know, the baby's obviously not settling down. I'm already awake. Why don't you just leave? I'll take it from here. So she left that morning at around 5.30, 5 o'clock, 5.30. I unswaddled my son, looked for any rashes, any leakage, any, any sign that I could think of. You know, there were no external physical signs of anything. So I just gave him skin to skin. He seemed to settle down. I'm like, okay, no, you just wanted your mommy. I must have dozed off, fell asleep. Next thing I hear him screaming again at seven o'clock in the morning. Like, okay, you're hungry. Last feeding was four, seven o'clock. So I got try to nurse him and he would not latch whatsoever. You know, I'd never had any issues before, but I was kind of jaded. You know, she told me he was gassy. So I'm like, okay, colic, nursing strike. You know, you just don't want to eat right now. So swaddled him again. And at this point, my 20 month old baby starts waking up. He starts calling my name. I try to put the baby down. As soon as I lay him down, he just starts screaming again. And I'm like, okay, you know, what is wrong with this kid? I pick him up. He stops screaming. I'm like, okay, do you just want to be held? You know, so I'm holding him. I go get my other son with my other arm, put him down, you know, try to get our morning routine started. And I could just not put the baby down, you know, and I'm here with Dr. Google. I'm like, what is wrong with this kid? Nursing strike, colic, you know, all of the above, basically, right? (laughs) Your infection, teething, whatever you can think of. And... Long story short, six hours go by and he would not eat. He would not nap. I could not put him down. And I could notice like his body, his color was changing. He was turning white. I'm like, I don't know what is wrong with this kid. Something is wrong with this kid. I call my mom, ask her to come over so that she could stay with my older son so that I could take the baby to the pediatrician. I call the pediatrician and the receptionist tells me he doesn't have any availability until three o'clock that afternoon. I'm like, he's been screaming since four o'clock in the morning. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. I need to see somebody. And she said, okay, then take him to the emergency room. 
So I'm like, okay, fine, let's go. Everybody hop in the car. My mom, my 20 month old, my seven week old and me drive to the hospital. And of course, what happens when you put babies in the car? They fall asleep, right? <laughs> and he fell asleep, no more screaming, no more crying. He seemed perfectly fine. And I'm like, great, no overreactive mom going to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. I get there, tell the receptionist what's going on. She does immediately take me to the back room, check all his vital signs. Everything seemed fine. He looked like he was sleeping to me. But the doctor comes in, tells me to lay him down on the bed, asks me his symptoms, what happened. I tell him and he walks away. I'm like, okay, great. Probably going to tell me to give the kids some Benadryl and go home. But he stops about 10 feet away at the door and he just stands underneath the doorway and he has his arms crossed and he's leaning against the door and he is just laser focused on my son on that bed. He doesn't say a word. That whole room is quiet. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. You know, thinking to myself, I'm looking at him. I don't see anything. And the doctor walks back towards the bed and he goes straight to my son's head right behind his left ear. He's like, did you feel this? I said, no. He grabs my fingers. He makes me put my hand there. He's like, you feel that bulge? I'm like, yeah. He says, that's fluid. That's leaking no. from his brain. Oh, good Lord. Oh. Like, okay. What does that mean? And he says, this could be spinal cerebral fluid. This can be blood. We need to go do a CT scan right away to see what's going on. And as soon as he says that, about 10 people rush into that room. And they start placing the probes on him, you know, on his head. They raise the rails up to that, the bed, the hospital bed, and they bolt down the hallway to that CT room. And I'm holding him. And as I'm holding him, his right arm starts twitching. Ugh. And those nurses run, I mean, start running. And I look up at the nurse. I'm like, is this normal? And she just says no. And then I realize, I'm like, oh, my gosh, left side of the brain, right arm twitching. He's having a seizure. And first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, my God, I gave it to him. Right. It's hereditary. It's genetic. I say a little prayer right there. I'm like, Lord, please spare my son from having to live with this like I did. We get to the CT room. They tell me to go wait in the waiting room for the results. And my mom is there, my 20 month old son bouncing off the walls and we're just in shock, right? We're like, what the heck just happened? I went from gassy baby to now some sort of life threatening brain condition. The doctors come back, you know, with the results and they tell me, Ms. Bruno, this is very serious. <clears throat> okay, take me to the back where all the monitors are. And he shows me the image. He's like, your son has a cranial fracture what? And the fluid that's leaking is blood. God. The brain oh. hates blood. We need to go do emergency surgery right now to see if we can drain the, the blood, fix the fracture. He starts giving me all these liability forms. Are you against blood transfusions? I'm like, I don't care what you have to do to save my son, save my son. And off they go, wheeling off my seven-week-old baby to emergency brain surgery. And I'm still in shock. Right. I'm still processing all this. I have no idea what's going on. Like it never crossed my mind. You know, I think it didn't register with me. The word fracture that like the bone was actually broken. Mm. You know, I figured it was a newborn baby. Their craniums aren't completely formed yet. I'm like, did one of those fontels pop open the bleeding? Could it be an aneurysm? You know, I was thinking anything. Never did it cross my mind that this could have been done maliciously or on purpose. So, you know, I go out there with my mom. My husband is on a business trip in a meeting. 
texting him. He has no idea what's going on. And we're just praying. You know, I text all my friends. I text my family in Brazil. I'm like, you know, my son is in the operating room. Everybody pray. Four hours go by. Surgeon comes out and, you know, says, okay, everything went clinically well as far as we're concerned. We were able to drain the blood. We were able to fix the fracture. And I'm like, okay, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? And the doctor tells me we really don't know. You know, due to his young age, we don't even know whether he's going to survive the next 48 hours. Mm. He's in a medically induced coma right now due to all the seizures he started having after the surgery, probably due to the irritation of the blood coming into contact with the brain. He was having about 15 seizures an hour. So we have him in a medically induced coma right now until we can find the right cocktail to control the the seizures. But he is stable. We will be monitoring him for the next 48 hours. I can take you upstairs to the PICU. So, you know, all this information coming at me and I'm just trying to process everything, trying to hold myself together, you know, trying to not lose hope. And I go into that room, into the PICU. I see my son, you know, with gauze wrapped all around his head. He has tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine. Those machines beeping, you know, those, if you've ever been in an intensive care unit, you know, those glass doors, I mean, it's very somber environment. And I just touched that little hand and I pray right there. I said, God, I don't care if I have to dedicate the rest of my life to taking care of my son, I will. Just don't take him away from me. And I felt the Holy Spirit at that moment say, he's mine. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from you. And I breathed and I said, you're right, God, he is yours. He's in your hands. No better place for my son to be right now than in your hands. Hallelujah. I had to surrender my son's life at that point. (laughs) And once I did, you know, the peace that surpasses understanding filled my heart, filled that room. Turned around, looked at my mom, hugged my mom. My son was there bouncing off the walls, my 20-month-old son. You know, then I go into logistics mode. I'm like, I'm obviously not leaving the hospital. I'm going to spend the night here, call my friend, pick up my mom, take my son. going to spend the night at grandma's house. My son, 20 months old, you know, loved it. that He was going to go to my grandma, grandma's house, do whatever he wants. <laughs> Gave him a kiss. And off they go. And I'm sitting there waiting for my husband, right, texting my husband what's going on. And I hear a knock on the door, the glass door. Slides open. Miss Bruno, can we speak to you? And I look up and it's a man in uniform, like a brown khaki uniform and a woman with a clipboard. And I'm like, okay, I thought it was weird. You know, look like law enforcement. I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah. And first words out of his mouth is, Miss Bruno, what happened to your son was worse than getting struck in the head by a bullet. Oh, my God. I'm like, okay, we want to help you. Will you help us figure out how this happened to your son? So, you know, in my mind, I'm like, bullet to the brain. Like, are you insinuating this woman tried to kill my son? And if you're asking me for help, you know, you obviously don't think it was me. (laughs) So I let them in. I'm like, okay, of course, come in, sit down. They come in and they start asking me questions. You know, I tell them the whole scenario from four o'clock in the morning until now we're at the hospital. And the police officer keeps asking me, why didn't you call 911? Because I didn't know what was wrong with him. You know, she told me he was gassy. And he's jotting it down. Why did you wait so long to bring him to the hospital? 
because I didn't know what was going on. You know, she told me he was gassy. Why did you bring him to hospital in Orange County when you live in LA County? Because this is the children's hospital that I know. So he's very nonchalant, casually jotting things down. The social worker then asked me, you know, do you have any other children? I do. Like, where are they? What are their names, their ages? So I tell her and she says, is it okay if we go see him? Hmm. And I'm thinking I have nothing to hide, right? These people are here to help me. That's what they told me. <laughs> so I tell her, yeah, he's at my mom's house. He's probably sleeping by now. And she said, we're not gonna wake him. We just wanna make sure he's okay. So I call my mom right in front of them. I tell her that they're on their way. Social worker leaves at this point and it's about 9.30 at night now. You know, so I've been up since four o'clock in the morning. It's 9.30 now. And the police officer stays with me, asks me if I will wait for the detectives, that the detectives are on their way and they would like to speak to me as well. I said, okay, I'll wait. And my husband arrives at around 10 o'clock at the hospital. He comes straight from the airport to the hospital. The police officer grabs him, doesn't even let him go talk to me, takes him to another room, tells me to go wait in another room for the detectives. And in hindsight, we can kind of see what's going on. But at that point, you know, we, we were just processing. I mean, I had no, I had no idea what was going on. You know, just processing all this information that had happened to my son. I mean, my son was in a coma, right? I was worried about my son. So the detectives show up at around midnight and they explicitly made it a point to tell me, you know, this is not an interrogation. This is an interview. We are very thankful that you're here to help us, that you are cooperating with us. So, you know, I talk to them. They interview me until two o'clock in the morning. Been up since four o'clock, so now almost 24 hours awake. And I finally tell them, you know, I really need to go to sleep. I really need to get some sleep. I don't want to have any seizures. <laughs> And I'm more than happy mm -hmm. to continue this on later today. So they were very nice. You know, they complied, gave me their business cards and I went to sleep. I wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning and my husband is just staring at me, this blank stare on his face. And my first instinct is to look at the baby. I'm like, he's here, he's alive. Like what's going on? And he tells me they took David. David is my 20 month old son who was with my mom. And I'm like, what do you mean they took David? Where? How? Who? I'm like, they lied to me. They said they weren't even going to wake him up. And he said, well, that's not what happened. They showed up at your mom's house at two o'clock in the morning with three police cars and they took David. And we don't know where he is. They're not answering their phones. Social services is not answering. And I'm like, oh my God, what, what, what? <laughs> so I call my mom and I'm like, what happened? And she said, yeah, they showed up here at two o'clock in the morning. They walked in the house. They asked me where the kitchen was, opened the refrigerator to see if we had any food, walked through the house, opened the cabinets, then asked me where David was. I showed them. She turned on the light, woke up David at two o'clock in the morning. Then she asked me to undress him. I undressed him. She looked for any signs of abuse or rashes or anything, and she admits there were none. But then she tells me we're taking him. And my mom is like, no, you're not. And the social worker tells us, well, if you don't give him to us, you're going to get arrested. Now, there are three cops right there and nobody says anything. And my mom doesn't know what's going on. I'm asleep. My husband at this point is on the phone with my mom telling the social worker, you cannot do this. I do not give you permission to do this. 
but they wouldn't listen to us, of course, like we're calling for backup. And my son is noticing all the commotion going on. My mom didn't know what to do. And today she tells me, you know, in her head at that point, she thought it would be less traumatic for my son if she would give him to them as opposed to them physically ripping him from her. Yeah. So she gave my son to the social worker and he's kicking and screaming, of course, won't let her put him in the car seat. My mom has to go in there, strap him in the car seat. She gives my mom her business card and says, call me. And off they drive in the middle of the night, not telling us anything, what's going on, where they're taking him. And here we are the next day. We still don't know where he is. They're not answering their phones. So my husband and I, you know, divide and conquer. He's calling social services. I start calling lawyers. And I had to call about 10 lawyers before I found one that knew what was going on and who would actually speak to me and take my case. Met him that afternoon at around noon and I get to his office and I'm like, okay, where the heck is my son and where do I go get him? And he tells me, sit down, you have no idea what you're in for. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They can't just come take my kid. He's like, yeah, they can. And I'm like, what happened to our constitution? Uh, what happened to innocent until proven guilty? What about the nanny? And he said, they may investigate or they may not, but this is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. And I'm like, what other law is there? <laughs> and he said, they can do whatever they deem is in the best interest of the child. And again, I'm like, how is it in the best interest of my son to pick him up at two o'clock in the morning and take him to God knows where? And he just stops me right there. He like he slams his fist on the table and he's like, listen to me. What happened to your son is criminal. OK, you are facing 15 years in jail and a hundred thousand dollar bail if they decide to charge you. They're not going to give your kids back to you. Oh my God. And I'm like, what are you talking? What jail? Like, I didn't do this. And he's like, I believe you. It doesn't matter. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? <laughs> and he's like, if I go into that courtroom and I ask the judge to give those kids back to you, social services is going to pull this up. And he pulls up the criminal investigation. He's like, they're going to tell the judge, your honor, this woman is under criminal investigation and you are placing these children at risk by giving them back to her. And if that happens, they're going to be placed in foster care. They are two years old, under two years old and nonverbal. They can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. What? And they will make it last longer than six months. And I'm I'm like jail adoption. I'm like, what what world, what country am I living in? Like how no. <laughs> you know, and I'm I guess I had a nervous reflex of giggling while he was telling me this. Right. I kept laughing. I'm like, this is unbelievable. No. And he actually called his wife from across the room. She was a paralegal and she's like, she's not believing me. She's not taking this seriously. Tell her. And she comes in. It's like, yes, they can do this. They do this all the time. And I'm like, OK, so what are you telling me? What 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 are we going to do? And he said, you're saving grace is that your husband was out of state when this happened. So legally speaking, he wasn't even at the crime scene. So we're going to ask the judge to give sole custody to your husband. Mm -hmm. That way they don't even risk going into foster care. Praise God for that. But if the judge grants this, they are going to kick you out of the house. 
So, I mean, at that point, what choice did I have? Right, oh go into that God. courtroom and fight for my non-existent rights, apparently, <laughs> and risk my children being placed in foster care or having them be with their father and do whatever the heck you want to me, but leave my kids alone. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. I mean, I went home to the hospital at that point, you know, hospital was our home. And I tell my husband and everybody is just horrified, right? And in shock that this is what's going on. And my lawyer, my attorney knew where, where David was. They actually took him to the county children's shelter and they would not release him to me. They would not release him to my husband. He was there for 48 hours with strangers. And I asked him, I'm like, okay, you know, we have a hearing in three days. They're required to do an emergency hearing, which is in 72 hours. They took away my son. I'm like, I don't know what's gonna happen at this hearing. Can I at least see my son? And my attorney said, well, I'll see what I can do. So he calls them, calls me back. He's like, they're willing to let you see him for 30 minutes at the children's shelter. So I go with my husband to that children's shelter and my son was like a zombie. Okay, I mean, he looked at me, he wouldn't come close to me. You know, he's just staring at me and the social worker is with him and she's like, yeah, he didn't sleep very well last night. And I'm like, yeah, duh. <laughs> and like, he hasn't eaten. I'm like, yeah, what have you fed him? Like hot dogs and peas. And he's just a zombie. You know, I sit down on him. And at this point, my husband and I are from Brazil. We only spoke Portuguese with him at home. And we made a signed document saying we would only oh, speak God. English with him. Because, you know, we were under investigation now. So the social worker had to hear what we were saying, making sure we're not brainwashing our son or whatever. <laughs> so I'm there with him speaking in English. And he's looking at me like, what are you saying? Like, what, who, who are you? You know, I sit down on the floor. He does sit down with me, sits on my lap. He starts playing, letting his guard down. And the social worker tells us your time is up. And my husband and I get up and my son notices, right? He's already clinging to my leg. And he's like, no, mommy, no. And I'm just, I, I try, I'm like, maybe we'll, we'll see you again. You know, we'll see you again soon. And he's clinging to my leg. I am the social worker, ma'am, you have to leave. You have to leave. I'm trying to control myself, not cry in front of my son. She picks him up and he is, you know, bending over trying to reach out to me and my husband. My husband and I just hold hands, we turn around and we start walking away. And our son is screaming for mommy and daddy. And the screams, you know, just get further and further away the further we get and we get to our car and we just, cry like two school children. I mean, a grown man crying like a baby, me and my husband just crying. And we're praying and we're like, God, this isn't happening. This isn't possible. You know, please, Lord, please don't let this happen. And this is 48 hours. We had the hearing the next day, which was going to be the emergency hearing where the judge was going to decide whether they would kick me out of the house, whether they would give them to my husband, whether they would place them in foster care. I mean, everything was up in the air. And we are just begging, clinging to God, you know, please open these judges' eyes, open these lawyers' eyes, whatever, that the truth be revealed. So we go to the hearing the next day. And I'm thinking it's going to be at least like Judge Judy. Right. <laughs> you talk, you talk, you talk. 
and we show up at that court, the nanny isn't there, the social worker isn't there, the police officers aren't there, the detectives aren't there, the doctors aren't there, the only person on trial is me. And it's just me with a table with a bunch of lawyers. You know, I have my husband's counsel, my counsel, the children's counsel, who I never even met, and they're representing my children, and then the social services counsel. They're all there. And I'm just sitting there waiting for the judge to call my name, right, and ask me what happened. And next time I hear my name, Ms. Bruno, any objections? What? I said, what? And my attorney, any objections to the children being placed with their father? I said, no. Then asked my husband, Mr. Bruno, any objections? No. Children's counsel, any objections? No. Social services, any objections? Yes. What? And then the judge, why? Because we never got to speak to the father. Therefore, we don't know whether he's fit or not. So at this point, judge orders court to be in recess. We go out into the hallway and I'm like, oh my God, this is not happening. Like, are you serious? And my attorney hands me a bunch of papers, the court reports that include, you know, the police officer's narrative, the social worker's narrative, the hospital narrative, all this stuff that they have so far. And he's like, I want you to go through this, underline things that you think are inconsistent or that are untruthful. I just want you to be psychologically prepared to be really pissed off right now after you read this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and meanwhile, we're gonna go back into the courtroom. We will deal with them in there, but you, I want you to stay out here and you go through this. So I'm going through the, through the document and, you know, as he said, I read what the police officer said and the police officer said, mother does not seem empathetic towards her son. The social worker said, mother is not exhibiting the normal behaviors of a grieving mother. What? The doctor says, mother is acting as if this were just some regular doctor's appointment. She has described various scenarios to me of what could have possibly happened. And, you know, they're just like my character in these, you know, few minutes that they spoke to me at that hospital during a moment where, you know, I couldn't have been more distressed in my life after what had happened to my son. But there they are, you know, basically insinuating that I'm some psychopath, you know, that I have no emotion, that I'm not feeling anything. And I was like, you know, I was in shock. People had no idea what was going on. And you told me you were there to help me. Like I was trying to hold myself together. What use would it have been to be hysterically crying if you're here to help me? And then I'm perusing through looking for any mention of the nanny. Like, did they even go talk to this woman? And there was a little section where a social worker did go talk to her after they had already taken my son, David. They went to go talk to the nanny. And it is noted in the court report that her one-year-old daughter had a bruise under her eye when they went to go speak to her. And that they asked her, you know, why does your daughter have a bruise under her eye? And that the nanny said she fell off the bed when she was sleeping. And that was that. They asked her, you know, how was my son and was anything wrong with my child? And she told them that the baby was perfectly fine when she left the house. And I'm like, you know, that doesn't even make sense. Like I'm paying this woman a lot of money <laughs> to be watching my son. Why would I have let you go home early? Why would I have even woken up if everything was perfectly fine when you left?
Yeah. So, you know, there was just these things in the court report and I got through it all. I noted things and then we get called back into the courtroom and the judge reopens and he says, the social services objection is overruled. Children will be placed with their father. So thank God, you know, by the grace of God. And then he tells me, Miss Bruno, you have 24 hours to vacate your home. You are court ordered to take child abuse classes, parenting classes, individual counseling, and a caseworker will be contacting you regarding visitation. Court is adjourned. So within 15 minutes, you know, my whole life was pulled out from underneath me. Right. I lost my home. I lost my husband. I lost my children. I'm like, you know, I go out there. I'm sobbing with my mom. We're both crying. My attorney is there and he's like, I told you this was going to happen. And I'm like, I know, but I still can't believe this is happening. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, where am I supposed to live? I'm an only child. My whole family's in Brazil. They wouldn't let me live with my mom because my mom was now going to be the primary caretaker while my husband had to work and take care of the two-year-old. And Lucas, my baby, was still in the hospital. And it was yet to be determined what was going to happen, where he was going to go when he was released from the hospital. So my attorney tells me, as long as your son is in the hospital, you can sleep in the hospital. They can't kick you out. It's a monitored facility. So I'm like, okay. (laughs) Then I went home, got rid of all my stuff in my house. He's like, you don't leave one toothbrush in that house. I don't want any signs of you, no shampoo, no nothing, because they're going to come to your house. They're going to go look through the house. They're going to write down everything. And the judge is going to look at everything that they write down. So you don't leave one trace of yourself. And I took out everything. I must have donated half my wardrobe. And my next door neighbor, you know, was gracious enough to let me put all the boxes in his house. And I didn't know when I was going to be home. Well, what was going to happen? I had no idea what was going to happen. And I'm in the hospital, sleeping in the hospital. About two days go by and my mom goes to church, our church that we regularly attended. My pastor was out of the country. He was in Oxford writing a book. So she asked my husband's, the pastor's wife, if she would go to the hospital and pray for us. So she did. She came to the hospital, prayed for my son. You know, at that point, he was still in the coma, still in the medically induced coma. And she hugged me prayed for me. And then she looks at me. I've been praying and God told me you're coming home with me. So, you know, I've been at this church for about six years and I knew them, you know, it was a high by relationship, but we weren't intimate friends. She basically invited a stranger into her house and these little things started happening, right? These little pearls that God would just drop throughout this journey. And in this, I couldn't have asked for a better friend at that point. She prayed with me. She laughed with me. She cried with me. I mean, she did everything with me, gave me the strength to go on. I remember going into the first child abuse class and I'm like, what the heck am I going to do in a child abuse class? Like I figured I'd be in there with a bunch of drug addicts, alcoholics, pierced up, tattooed, crazy people. What's wrong with tattoos? (laughs) (laughs) I'm offended. (laughs) When I get there, everybody was in the same boat that I was. Oh, Oh my. Nobody had abused their child. There were bathtub accidents. There were park accidents. 
there were disgruntled exes. I mean, the stories were crazy. And I was in there, you know, and I start telling what my story was. They could complete my sentences. They could say, oh, let me guess, your caseworker is so-and-so. Like, yeah. Oh, your judge is so-and-so. Yeah. Dr. So-and-so. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Like, this is normal? Like, this happens? And even the facilitators, right? The people that are facilitating this class are like, oh, yeah, they do it all the time. This happens all the time. And I'm like, why? Like, why? And why is nobody doing anything? What? What is this? And, you know, they all roll their eyes. They let out their deep sighs. And they're like, yeah, it's it's about the money. And I'm like, what money? And then I remembered my son, David. They wouldn't release him to me, right? They wouldn't release him to my husband. They released him to my mom because my mom was a public school teacher. She was fingerprinted. She was a mandated reporter. And before I even had that hearing, the emergency hearing, they asked my mom if she would adopt my kids. And my mom's like, no, we give them back to their mom, whom they belong. And the social worker said, well, we don't know what the judge is going to order. If the judge orders the removal of the children, will you adopt them? My mom's like, what happens if I don't? Like, they'll go to foster care. So my mom's like, okay. So she signs the papers. I mean, okay, it's a piece of paper saying that I'll take the children. So she signs the pieces of paper and the social worker hands her two checks for $680 each. She's like, you'll be receiving $680 a month per child. They will qualify for Medicaid. They will qualify for food stamps. They will qualify for, you know, all the social welfare benefits we had in California. And my mom's like, I don't want your money. And the social worker tells us, well, this is how we help the families. So here I am in this child abuse class and they're telling me it's about the money. So, you know, Dr. Google at night when I'm home alone, trying to figure out like what, like this is evil, man, like why? And I found there is such a law called the Adoptions and Safe Families Act, which was signed into law by Bill Clinton in 1997. And it basically gives the states federal money for every child that is adopted through foster care. So I don't know if you remember back in the 90s, a lot of buzzwords like forever family, it takes a village. You know, this was first lady, then Hillary Clinton. This was her brainchild to come up with this solution of why kids were spending so much time in foster care without being adopted, you know, without being placed, without having permanency, without having stability. Yet nobody ever asks, you know, should these children have been removed to begin with? Right? So yeah, there was this law and all these people that were in the child abuse class with me were getting their parental rights terminated were getting their children placed for adoption in foster care. They were having to pay for their monitored visitation. They were having to pay their probation officers. I mean, it was crazy. It was insane. And one day, as I was still at the pastor's house, somebody very close to me called me. And they're like, Rachel, I've been praying. And one word keeps coming to my mind. And it's repent. And I'm like, okay. You know, kind of felt like Job at that moment. <laughs> I'm like, you're telling me I deserve this or I did something to do this? <laughs> and she's like, I don't know. That's just a word that keeps coming to my mind. And I'm like, you know, okay. Later that night, take it to God, right? I prayed 
I'm like, okay, God, who sinned? <laughs> right? Was it my mother? Was it my father? And again, the Holy Spirit just speaking to me. I mean, I had never had more closeness with God yeah. than at this point. And he said nothing, my daughter. Well, this is just the evil world we live in. This is about the destruction of the family. What you're witnessing right now is about the destruction of the family. And it's what the devil has been trying to do from the moment I created it. And I'm like, you're right. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, always about destructing of the family. And, but, you know, consoled me and said, but fear not. I have already taken care of the children. It will be for a short period of time. Your story will be used to help families. Everything you are going through is not going to be in vain. Hallelujah. And I said, amen. Thank you, Lord. And from that moment, my perspective completely shifted to, you know, here I am. I know Jesus. I know God. I have him as my savior. I have hope. My children have hope. They're with their husband. I mean, I have this incredible support system around me. What about all these other families who don't? You know, all these parents who are in this child abuse class with me who don't know Jesus. How do you go through this without knowing Jesus? And completely shifted my perspective on everything, you know, it stopped being why me to why not me. You know, Jesus suffered. The son of God suffered, was accused, falsely accused, mean betrayed, you name it. Everything that we have suffered in this world, he suffered as well. So I just began interceding and praying for those families, right? Lord, use me in these child abuse classes for your glory, for hope for these families. And to this day, I'm still in touch with them. I have one very good friend who had the same attorney I did, had the same judge I did, had the same caseworker I did, had the same hospital I did, and her parental rights were terminated in October of 2018. She lost all four of her children. Oh, my gosh. Her husband lost his two children from a previous relationship because he refused to divorce her. And... I'm like, Lord, this is crazy. This is so evil. This is so evil. And once my case was done, you know, on the 40th day, I had a court hearing. It was 40 days and 40 nights. (laughs) I had been given seven hours of monitored visitation with both my sons during those 40 days. And on the 40th day, I had a hearing. My attorney tells me, you know, don't bother coming to court today. The criminal investigation is still open. The status of your investigation hasn't changed. Don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. And I'm like, he's been right all along. (laughs) So I call my husband. I tell him, you know, he tells us not to go. And my husband says, I don't care what he says. We're going. I'm like, okay, fine. Let's go. (laughs) So we go to the courthouse, sitting there in the hallway of death, as I call it. Everybody in that hallway waiting for their names to be called. And we sit there for about two hours. My attorney calls me. Where are you? I'm at the courthouse. He's like, okay, I'm on my way. Might be able to do something today. Hangs up on me. And I'm like, okay. Texting everybody. Everybody start praying. I don't know what's going to happen. Something's going to happen. I had my whole family in Brazil praying for me. I had an entire church in Brazil of 5,000 people. Wow. Who the pastor made them all stand up. (laughs) To the north, North America. And we are going to pray for this family. 
And they all fasted for those 40 days. This was not oh. a 40 day. <laughs> I had friends in Switzerland praying for me. I had missionaries in Africa praying for me. I had the entire America praying for me. <laughs> so we're there. Everybody's just praying. My attorney comes down the hallway. I go hug him. He pushes me away. He's like, don't hug me. I can't make you any promises. <laughs> like, okay. So he walks into that room. And he comes back out with a bunch of papers. Again, initial this, sign this, initial this. I have no idea what I'm signing, what I'm initialing. Just trusting God at this point. In and out, in and out, in and out for about three hours. Till he comes out with a stack of papers, about 700 pages. Wow. He's like, okay, here's the deal. If you're willing to sign this document the way it is written, there's nothing in here admitting guilt. There's nothing in here saying that you did this. It's just the social workers' narratives, the police investigation, the medical records, the services you've completed. They will let you go home today. Now, at that point, if they had told me to cut off my leg, I would have done it. <laughs> right? <laughs> I just wanted to be home with my husband and with my children. I signed that document, and my attorney told me I've been doing this for 23 years, and I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. Oh. Right? You definitely have a higher power working for you. <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so I went home that day. The case remained open. They put us on what they call the family maintenance plan, where a social worker would come to our house every month for the next six months. And at the end of the six months, it was her recommendation that our case be closed. I was still court ordered to take all those services, the child abuse classes, the parenting classes, the individual counseling, do all that stuff. The case was closed six months. And I just had a fire up my butt at this point. I'm like, I can't be quiet. Like witnessing everything that I witnessed, the injustice that I've witnessed. And I know it was the hand of God on my family. Like I'm no better than any of those parents that were in there with me. You know, I have absolutely no explanation of why I got my kids back and they didn't. Because, you know, the circumstances were the same. Accidents, you know, people talking like there is no there is no due process. There was no trial. There was no proof. There was nothing. They just decided they made up their minds. And I'm like, I can't. I can't. And, you know, I remember that prayer I had. That God would use this for good, that God would use this to help families and that this was not going to be in vain. So I reached out to civil rights attorney who all he does is sue CPS. He's done it a million times in California. I spoke to him, asked him if he would take our case, and he said he would. So we began the civil proceeding to sue Orange County, L.A. County, the hospital, the sheriff's department, social services, and all the individuals associated with our case. And it wasn't until we sued them that we had access to the juvenile records. Ooh. And the juvenile records are supposed to remain sealed until they're 18, right, supposedly for the children's protection but it's really for their own protection to cover their butts and what they did while the case was open. And it was there that we discovered that when they took David, my 20 month old son to the shelter, they gave him 13 vaccinations without our consent. Shut up. Without a court order, without a warrant. They actually took David without a warrant. They gave him a full skeletal survey, which is basically an X-ray of every image in your body or a bone, every bone in your body. They gave him what is called an anal wink test, which is for allegations of sexual abuse when there wasn't even any allegations of sexual abuse. 
And I mean, it was a whole other sort of pain, right? To read these documents and see just the heartlessness, like, like why? Like, how do you people live with yourselves? How can you do this? And, you know, making up stories, like <laughs> doctors know, right? That they need warrants, that they need parental consent in order to perform these kinds of examinations on any child, on any minor except when there are exigent circumstances, which is life or death situation. So the social worker wrote to the doctor that there was a suspicion that my son had been thrown against the wall and that there may be some internal bleeding or you know whatever, any kind of something going on inside to where the doctor had to perform these very invasive procedures on my son after he had just been taken from his grandma's house at two o'clock in the morning they had to tie him down to the hospital bed to be able to get to him to take the x-rays. And I just, I'm like, God almighty, you know, what goes through a child's mind, right? And through his heart. And he did, I mean, he rejected me for about a year. Even after I was allowed to come back home, he kept pushing me away. He kept pinching himself, biting himself. Mm. He would say, I don't want you, mommy. He wanted to go back to my mom's house because my mom is the one who rescued him right from the shelter. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day giving him a bath and he's just fighting me and I just start crying You know, I run to the bathroom and I go cry and I go pray again. I'm like, God, I can't do this. You know, I'm building a wall against my three-year-old son, three years old at this point. And I'm like, I know he's the victim. I know what they did was wrong, but the words hurt, right? I can't take this the rejection, what am I supposed to do? And the Holy Spirit, again, go talk to him. I'm like, he's, he's three years old. He's not going to understand this. I guess he will go talk to him. So I get him out of the bathtub. I sit down with him and I say, you remember when your aunties had to come take care of you? And the first words out of his mouth, why did you leave? So he remembered and I got the pictures of his brother in my phone. I'm like, this is what happened to your brother. And they thought that mommy did this. And he went like, you never heard us, mommy. I'm like, I know. But they thought that mommy did. And if I had done this to him, I was going to do it to you. But none of this was your fault, David. You know, it was not mommy's choice. It was not daddy's choice. It was nobody's choice for this to happen. We did it because we loved you but we're not gonna let them get away with it. You know, they just made some really bad choices. He's like, you gonna fight them, mommy? We will. Like, you gonna hit them? I'm like, yeah, we're gonna hit them with a pile of papers on their head. <laughs> and, you know, just having this organic, transparent conversation with my three-year-old son. I'm like, we have to forgive them. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know what happened. I don't know what the nanny did. Like, is she in jail? Like, I don't know, David, she's in God's hands. You know, he's going to take care of her. And all these other people, we have to forgive them. God forgave us first, right? Yeah. We have to forgive them. And regardless of what happens, God is the judge. Amen. So I prayed with him. And it was a complete 180 from that point on. My son completely shifted. And God restored everything the locusts tried to eat. And destroy, God restored. Oh, God. And we filed the civil suit. I showed him the papers. Mike, here, here's the papers that we're going to fight them with. <laughs> and I signed it in front of him. We prayed over it with him. 
He put it in the envelope. He put it in the mail. So, you know, children are a lot more, are smarter than we think, than we give them yeah. credit for. Yes, they are. That, thank you for that, too, because yes. we are brutally honest with our children about everything. We, yeah. ju we just are truthful. Yeah. Just yeah. about everything because they're lied to about so much. Yeah. And they get it. Yeah. yeah. They understand it when yeah. you just say it how it is. Yeah. So we filed the suit and went through discovery. Like I said, we got all those documents. We deposed them. I mean, I have text messages of the social workers before they even interviewed me, before they got to the hospital. They are sending each other text messages to her supervisor. She says, heading to the hospital, infant with a fracture, has a 20-month-old sibling, was with the nanny per mom. And the supervisor replies back, OMG, do you think it was the nanny? And this social worker replies back, no, think mom. Before they ever spoke to me. What so we're doing this discovery, deposing them till finally about after one year of discovery, we had the mediation and we ultimately settled in December of 2018 for $1.49 million. And, you know, there's no amount of money that can ever repay us for what they did. It wasn't about the money, you know, but I did want a clean slate. I mean, we had about $250,000 in debt at that point. Oh, Fighting them and the medical bills and all the services they made us do. I mean, I had to get a private investigator to find out if we could see anything about the nanny. And no real red flags, except she was married to a cop. And mm -hmm. my, my private investigator told me, you know, this is code blue. They're not going to go after her. Wow. And I got videos of her doing her polygraph. She did take a polygraph. And it was a very different experience than what I had. I also took a polygraph. She failed hers. She didn't fail. Hers came back inconclusive. And she refused to take it again. Mm. I passed mine with flying colors, but it was never presented. So just, you know, it was very clear that they had no intention of reunification or of even going after the truth, right? It wasn't what was the truth. They just wanted, they had made up their minds and they wanted to prove that they were right. They are too prideful, you know, too arrogant to ever admit that this was a mistake. And it was funny when we were in the settlement discussion, you know, a lot of back and forth, the mediator is just written on those yellow legal pads. My attorney writes down all the demands and goes back to one room and then they come back with their counter offers. And I asked my attorney, I'm like, will they at least apologize? Like, will they at least say they're sorry for what they did? And my attorney laughs. He's like, no, but I can write it down here just to make them mad. <laughs> Good for him. So, <clears throat> excuse me. He wrote it down on the yellow pad that he wanted an apology on official letterhead signed by so-and-so <laughs> and gave it to them. And it came back. It was scribbled like a four-year-old had gotten a hold of a pen for the first time and like, no, <laughs> we are not going to give you an apology. Wow. So we settled. And, you know, today I can look back and thank God, of course, I was thankful. I was grateful that we were able to settle and we were able to pay off our bills. We were able to get a clean slate. But that day, I hated myself so much that day. Like It was the weirdest feeling. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't, I, I wanted to go to trial. Like, I want these stupid people held accountable. I want them on the stand. I want them to, you know, the jury to hear these people. I don't care if I win $1 at trial. I just want these people held accountable. 
And my attorney's like, I understand, you know, I know. I'm not saying your case doesn't have merit, it does. You probably would win at trial. Question is how much, we don't know. And again, juries are finicky, right? People are finicky. It's a toss up. You never know, like somebody might not like the sound of your voice and already have a bias against you. It's true. And remember, we're fighting who are the good guys. You know, the police officers, social workers, doctors. These are all yeah. supposed to be public servants doing God's work. So it's very hard to convince a jury, right, that these things were done maliciously. And even if you do win, the other side is going to appeal. And then we're back to square one. You're going to be in this for another five years. So my advice to you is take the money and run. Close this chapter on your life. You know, just think about the emotional toll, the financial toll that this is going to take on you and your family for the next five years. Do you really want to be doing this for the next five years? Hmm. And I just had to pray, you know, in that mediation room. And, you know, if like the little devil on one side and the little angel on the other side of your shoulder. <laughs> and like, don't be stupid, Rachel. Right. Don't be stupid. <laughs> and do not let your pride get in the way. Yeah. Right. Your emotions get in the way. My husband and I had a number in mind when we went to that mediation, like we're not going to settle for anything less than 1.5. And they came back with 1.49. Oh. <laughs> and I'm looking at my husband and we're like, okay, okay, $100,000. Are we really going to do this for $100,000? And I don't think it was me who spoke. I mean, the Holy Spirit opened my mouth and just said yes <laughs> to accept that 1.49. <laughs> And we accepted mm -hmm. that deal, but I spent the next three days in bed. Like I couldn't get out of bed. And my friend Rihanna, who had all her parental rights terminated, I was still in contact with her at that point. She calls me one day and I thought she was gonna talk about, you know, something regarding her case or if anything had changed. And she calls me and she says, I just wanna tell you, you're amazing. And I'm like, what? Why am I amazing? And she's like, you're amazing for what you did. And to this day still makes me cry. I'm like, I'm, I'm nothing. <laughs> I'm like, here she is, you know, she's lost everything. And here I am, you know, complaining about what I won, that it doesn't feel right. So the conviction, right? The conviction that the Holy Spirit gave me at that point. is like, you put on your big girl panties on <laughs> and <laughs> you go fight this fight. Okay. I've already given you the relief. I've already given what your family needs. Now you go fight this fight. And anytime I feel like giving up or anytime I feel, you know, am I really getting anywhere? I always remember that conversation I had with Rihanna. And Rihanna is like the poster child for what I want the system to change. Mm. You know, and the family who, you know, was not the perfect family. What there is no perfect family. There is no perfect parent. Like who <laughs> defines what is in the best interest of the child? <laughs> <laughs> Right. God. So, yeah, I mean, thank God I got my kids back. We got our family back together. We won our civil suit. I was able to write the book. And I just want people to wake up and you know that we've been lied to about foster care mm -hmm. and that foster care is not the Make-A-Wish Foundation. No. Right. And that there aren't, you know, all these abused children that need fosters. No, there are a lot of families who need help. Yes. Right. Who need help. And like they offered my mom $680 a month to take my children. What if I was a single mother? 
what if I was working two to three jobs and I didn't have the money to be able to provide for my for my children? Mm-hmm. Why not give that money to me? Right. And why not offer those services to me to keep my family together? I mean, think about the trauma you are causing these families, these children. And I mean, my son was only there for two days and he was a completely different person mm-hmm. than what he was when he left my house. Yeah. I don't care if it's been one day, if it's one year, the damage is done. Yep. Right. So that's my story. You know, if you have any questions, I'm open. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, you're like superwoman. Um, <laughs> that God definitely put his strength in you. I, I can't yes. even imagine. I, well, hold on. I know that you would fight like her, but that's not to take away from her courage and what she's done. I know you would do the same thing because well, I know the kind of mom you are. Yeah, but the pain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're you you're, mo- you're you know she's emotional. Yeah, <laughs> in a yeah. good way. In a good way. Yeah. I mean, I I feed off of of her, so I I, I get it. But I know yeah. that you would fight. Yeah. I but I love meeting people like you because yeah. it's whether it's this case or something else. It's it just shows that the problem can look too big for us, mm-hmm. but it's not bigger than our God. Oh. And, and I love the way that you talked about, you know, speaking with the Holy spirit mm-hmm. and finding peace in that. Like you, I mean, this is really a testimony. This is almost, this is, is, this is like when people give their testimony about how they find Jesus, right? This is a testimony of how amazing Jesus is yes. and why when, when we, you know, you meet people that love the Lord, this is why we love the Lord mm-hmm. it is because it's strength where it, that comes out of nowhere. It's, yep. it's the power to take, stronger, to do the impossible. It's, it's Jesus. Stronger than the evil. Yeah. And that's, and all the, every victim that has dealt with this. And I, I think we've had, this is the fourth or fifth one now of the interview of a situation like this. You're the first person that's talked about clinging to the Lord. You're the first person that's mm-hmm. painted this picture. And this is what I'm so grateful for you doing this too, because it helps us with our discernment. Cause I don't want to help the wrong people. Right. We want to help the right people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the people that under like, the, like yourself, like this is so cool and so amazing. And yet at the same time, so uncomfortable <laughs> and painful <laughs> to hear. Yes. But it's in, I'm I am so inspired. I, I have one question. I really this is the question. Mm-hmm. To anyone out there that is that is facing this situation, what do you have to say to them? I mean, yeah, I would not have gotten through this without God. You know, you have to cling to a higher power because once the government is involved. They have all the power. They have all the resources. They have endless, endless resources, right? And they know it. I mean, they can run you dry financially, emotionally, physically. I I had nothing, literally nothing. And I remember in those nights by myself, you know, having grown up in church, my dad was a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. I grew up in a Christian family and always hearing, you know, God's grace is enough. You know, God will never leave you or forsake you. <laughs> Cling, you know, all these little Bible verses you grow up hearing. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know in one ear out the other. Right. 
but is it really right? <laughs> and I had to live that. Like I was, I had nothing. I had nothing but God and his word. And I had to cling to the promises in his word. And the Holy Spirit will work through you. You know, he is the comforter. He will work through you. Even when my attorney told me that I was going to go to jail, right? I was still not in the clear, right? The criminal investigation was still open. And up until that point, they had done everything illegally anyway. What would have stopped them of putting me in jail? Yeah. So I remember praying one day, you know, and I'm like, God, if I have to go to jail, like, I really don't understand this. I don't understand why. I know my children are with their father. You know, they be with their father. I pray for their father. Lord, cover him in your grace and to be able to take care of these children. If I have to go to jail and if there is somebody in that jail that needs to hear about you, then Lord, here I am. Use me. Use me. It's so cool to hear a story like this that's so devastating. And God did everything to, to make it something really, really amazing that can help so many more people. So thank you. Thank you. And, you know, on the practical legal standpoint, you know, on my website at rachelbruno.com, I do have like five points what to do if CPS comes knocking at your door. So your viewers can go and download that document. It's free. So, you know, and be educated. You know, we have to know our rights as parents. That night at the hospital, I never should have spoken to them. You know, I really shouldn't have spoken to them. I don't care how nice they are to you. I don't care what they say to you. You as an American citizen, as a parent, you have a right to remain silent. <laughs> you know, the Fifth Amendment yeah. exists for a reason. <laughs> Nobody talks about that anymore. Yeah. And, you know, kindly, of course, you don't want to be rude. You don't want to make them mad. You know, mm-hmm. and argue with them, but I should have told them, you know, I will be more than happy to speak with you in the presence of my attorney. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> Rachel, uh, you know, I don't, anything that we can do to help support your mission, um, you know, if you know other people that are going through this and we can help tell their stories, whatever, I don't, I, we just want to be of service. And of course, we're going to promote and distribute this everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um and it'll be on Google News. I mean, we <laughs> we're, we we want these stories to get out because, again, this you've taught us a bunch. Like I said, we just were set in a virtual court mm-hmm. with CPS and everybody. And and I saw what you mean that deceptive smile. We want the best for everybody. And mm-hmm. and the whole time I'm going, I've heard horror stories about you guys, <laughs> and, and I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, oh boy. And, and this was a real eye-opening experience, but I'm so happy that the way that you told this story, it, it was useful for us. Um, and, and, you know, and this is something that, God, what you're doing is so important. So again, anything that we can do to support you, please let us know. We're so thankful for your courage, your fight, and uh, what a blessing wow. you are. Yes. Thank you so much. You know, you've already done your part in exposing this and creating awareness. And I think that's the number one thing right now is just create an awareness campaign because people really don't know what happens. And if you want to get a deeper dive, here's my book. Is it upside down? Oh, no, it's not. It's just in reverse. It's backwards. Yeah. (laughs) 
I like the packaging or the 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 cover. It's beautiful. Yeah, well, that's actually me. The first time I got to hold him after surgery. Oh wow! Yeah. So this book will go into the deep dive of the faith journey that I went through. You know, the depositions, all the stuff are in there. It's it's very interesting. <laughs> Where can they they buy? Can they buy the book at rachelbruno.com? They can, but it'll just lead you to Amazon to the link on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, Rachel, God bless you. Yes. Thank you for the really servant warrior that you are. Thank you for your faithfulness because you, this was an excellent reminder. It's amazing how you can have church in the most unexpected ways sometimes. And this felt like church in the sense that this was an ultimate, this was a Bible story. This was faith in motion. This was Testament. complete Amen. surrender. Yep. And uh, so many beautiful lessons to take from this, even in such a dark and off story. Uh, Rachel, God bless you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. <laughs> See you soon. Hi. Oh, my oh I can breathe now. That was horrible. No, I, she's not. I, no, she's amazing. I would go, I would pay to watch her talk <sighs> on stage because I think about the battles that we've gone through as a couple, the things that we face, the issues that we've been a part of, and then our own stories independently. And, you know, we always, I like to say that we live off, we've been living off of faith, you know, and that's how we operate. But that's the most encouraging faith uh, story I've ever heard in my life. It, it, it really does a good job showing how even the hardest or especially the hardest, the hardest things to go through will be used for good if you still believe. Yeah. I don't do this enough, but please share this video out. Um, even though we're very grateful to have our network and the audience that all of you that have downloaded our app and watch on the variety of different methods, thank you for that. But if you're watching on social media, please share, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and tell people about it because her story, one, just inspiring. Mm -hmm. Like you think what you're going through is tough. That, that's the most, I've heard a lot of wild stories. I mean, getting to do sermons in a Saturday night service with, you know, the, the, you know, the audience is mostly ex-convicts and convicts, like you hear crazy stories and wild stories. And, but that one just physically, I feel like it altered me somehow. Mm -hmm. Like it just, that was deep. God, I love, this is why I can't say it enough. It's th this faith. This is why I love the Lord the way I do. And my story is completely different than hers. But why I love the Lord so much and why I'll talk about him anywhere and I'll, what it doesn't matter to me is because of what he's done for me. Mm -hmm. And then you hear stories like that, what he's done for her. And there's other people, there's stories all over the world of what God's done for them. And if you're struggling, if you're hanging on, you think that God doesn't have a plan for you. You don't think God exists. You think God's abandoned you. Or your, your trials are too tough. And like, why is this happening to me? I pray that this opens your heart, that God is there for you. Maybe it's just he's waiting for you to say, I can't do it without you. Mm. And maybe 
if it's that you don't have a relationship with the Lord, if you don't have a relationship with Yeshua, Jesus Christ, if you don't have that relationship in your life and you're just, you're, you're feeling all that she's feeling, or you feel hopeless, you don't feel like God has anything for you, maybe it's time just to say, God, take my life. It's yours. I, I can't do this on my own. I've been trying on my own. It's not working. I'm not where I know that there's more out there for me. Why am I not getting it? God, I surrender my life to you. Or if you know that you're hanging on to something that doesn't belong to you. You know, it could be in a bad relationship. I've been there. It could be drugs. It could be any type of addiction. I've had them all. I know. I understand. And I know how hard it is to let go of for whatever reason. You're like, you know, the thing is killing you. And you still hang on to it. I promise you, there's something so powerful about just saying, I surrender, Lord. I surrender this. It could be all of the things. It could be one of the things. It, heck, if you surrender one thing today, you're making room for God to put something else there. But the more you surrender, the more God replaces with what he wants there. And I'm telling you right now that if it there is no way that I have the life that I have now without Jesus. No way. No way do I have the woman of my dreams, no, the family of my dreams. Like everything that I've lost has been restored because of my relationship with the Lord and my utter reliance on him. Because I can't do anything without him because I've screwed it all up. God wants, has, God's plan for you is bigger than you can ever imagine. And those dreams and visions you have, the, the images that you see of a better life, mm -hmm. what if I told you that what God has for you is even better than that? You just got to trust him. You just got to mm -hmm. surrender what you want for his. And, and, and I'm telling you, he is the creator of your life. And what he can do with your life is so extraordinary. How is it possible in the last two and a half years where hell is just unleashed on earth? And or now maybe that I mean hell's probably been here, it has been it's here the whole time. Been. But now it's revealed and people are seeing it. Mm -hmm. And people are facing hardship like they've never done before. They're losing their jobs, they're, they're losing all they're losing all the stuff. How is it possible that in the this time that I'm living the life that we are living the life of our dreams and doing what God's called us to do. It's because of our reliance on God, not man. Everything you see on your TV is man's system. And if you mm -hmm. just, as you just heard, man's system is corrupt. It's evil. It's messed up. But God will persevere. If you give your life to the Lord, you will persevere through it all. Yep. It's just a simple surrender. Do you have anything to say, honey? <sighs> Uh, I, I, no, I, I just am soaking it in it, as a mom. It is, it's the worst nightmare. So I, you know, I'm grateful to hear her story that it could happen to anyone. And if you trust in the Lord that you're, you're going to make it through it. So I, I pray that the other parents, moms that need to see this and hear the story can see it and hear it. Thank you for watching.